Our text this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 4, and I'd like you to open your Bibles if you're able and willing, and let's read verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Father, we ask this morning that you would help us. Help us to understand your word, help us to absorb your word, help us to remember your word, and then help us to apply your word. For we are very weak and very silly and full of sin and self. We would see Jesus as clear as day. Let us see Jesus. Amen. So uh, last week, we explored the last few verses of chapter 3, and in the interest of time, um, I only homed in on one main point in that passage, uh, the love of Christ. And I, I argued briefly that in our basic nature, we are all desiring creatures, that that is our fundamental sort of what we do, what we are, we are creatures of desire or lovers, and what we love, we pursue. And there is always at least one overarching vision of the good and the happy life that orients all of our desires and all of our loves, and we pursue that, that vision of a happy life, the good life. Um, And I said another way to think about that is that we are all pursuing some kind of a vision of the kingdom. Now, that's another way of putting it. We're desiring a particular vision of the kingdom, and apart from God, um, our vision of the good life or our vision of that kingdom is very shallow and is very partial, but we really believe that if we just pursue it and attain it, um, it will fulfill all of our desires and all of our deepest longings. And it will heal all of our inward wounds and sicknesses, and it will bring us peace and happiness and contentment. And so, whatever it is that captures us, we reorient our lives around it. And and it might be a a relationship that it doesn't even necessarily have to be a romantic relationship. It might be a relationship with a father figure or with a child. It might be a certain social status. It might be a career. And we think, if I could just make it to that corner office and all that that corner office represents, then I could be happy. Then I could be at rest. Then I know that I have made it and I've been successful and I've lived a good life. It might be an athletic achievement. It might be an educational achievement. It could be a number, any number of things. And it's And it's not that what you are pursuing is necessarily bad in and of itself. It's just that it's inadequate. It it won't deliver to you what you hope it will. It wasn't designed to. 
And, and so pursuing a lesser good as though it was your greatest good fundamentally then turns out to be the sin of idolatry. Now, the good news is that there is an actual kingdom that takes all of these lesser visions of the good and the happy life, and it transcends them, and it puts them in their proper place so that they become good and stay good and, and, and are blessed in that, in that uh, vision of the kingdom. In other words, you can have the things that are good. God will give them to you in his time if he sees fit. But when he gives them to you, he will give them to you in such a way that they're not destructive because you're oriented towards the true kingdom. You see, this kingdom that is, is what you've actually wanted your whole life. You just didn't realize it. It's what you were actually pursuing when you were chasing those lesser visions of the good life. And Jesus' whole message when he began to teach was about this kingdom the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of the heavens. And his primary message was, now that I have come, the kingdom of God is available for people to learn how to live in by placing their confidence in me. By placing their confidence in me about all of the issues of life and death and by learning how to follow me, learning to be my disciple. And in that interactive process of following me, says Jesus, I will teach you about living in the kingdom by direct experience. Now, the kingdom of God was where you were designed to live and flourish. Every creature has a natural habitat, right? A whale or a cabbage or or a, a, a coconut tree. They all have a place where they belong and where they flourish. The kingdom of God is where you belong and where you flourish. It's what you were designed for. It's your natural habitat. And when you get a clear vision of it, you will find that it awakens tremendous desire in you. And you'll say to yourself, I want that more than I've ever wanted anything else in the world. And that's why Jesus twice compared it to a treasure that was so valuable that the the person who noticed it went with great joy and sold everything he had so that he could buy that treasure, so that he could acquire that treasure. It was the pearl of great price. It was the treasure hidden in the field. That's the kingdom of God. And, and, And when you see it, clearly you go, that's worth giving up everything for. And I will I will think myself rich in all ways if I have it. Now, in this last part of chapter 3, Paul tells us two things about the kingdom and about life in that kingdom. First of all, he says it's a place where you are loved. It's a place where you are loved with a love that is so large and so extensive that God has to give you spiritual assistance in order for you to begin to even appropriate it and understand it. And if he didn't give you that assistance, you'd never believe it. You'd never believe it because it's literally too good to be true. And he says he wants you to know the love of Christ and it's a, he wants you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So he wants you to know something you can't ever fully know. Now, being loved like this is very, very good for you. 
It heals you. Once you begin to experience it, once, once it, it comes out of here and goes into here, you will find that it heals you. There's no rejection lurking behind the scenes in this love. All that Jesus wants to do is to, is to be good to you. It also begins to flow through you and out of you to other people. And then you find yourself suddenly doing the sorts of things that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 mentions. You're patient, you're kind, you're gentle. You don't seek your own way. You don't rejoice in the wrong, but you rejoice in the right and the truth. You bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. And this happens not because you're trying very hard to act that way, but because the love of Christ has filled you and has possessed you, and so it just naturally flows out of you. you see, human beings are built this way, aren't they? Whatever is poured into us, we tend to pour out on others. We, we see this very clearly in the raising of children, don't we? When, when people, the people who are the most important uh, people in that child's life or a child's life treats that child with anger and contempt, they'll turn around and treat everybody around them with anger and contempt. When they're treated with kindness, they tend to be kind to others. It's been shown repeatedly in behavioral studies that people who are sexually abused as children are much more likely to become abusers themselves when they grow up, especially if that abuse is homosexual. The, the Indian reservations in South Dakota are, are just full of this intergenerational sexual abuse, which was something that was totally foreign to Indian culture before the reservation system came into being. And you know what caused it? The government boarding schools. They were full of sexual predators before anybody even knew what that was. And, and the teachers and the administrators did horrible things to those Indian children. And, and then they set them free into their tribes. And they, in turn, did horrible things to others. And it's created this intergenerational cycle of predatory behavior. And it's gone on now for a century or more. Why is that? Well, it's because hurt people hurt people. But the opposite is also true. Loved people love people. That's how God set it up. And, and the most powerful love in the, in the entire universe is the agape love of Jesus Christ. So if you want to love like Christ, then you must press into God in prayer to know the love of Christ. Well, there's another important thing to understand about living in this kingdom that we didn't get to last week, and so I want to just cover it briefly. This kingdom is a place where the tremendous power of God is readily available to us just for the asking. And, and we find this in that little doxology that flows from Paul's pen there in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3. Now unto him, to, to God, who is able to do things that are more amazing and more abundant than we can ask or even dream up and imagine, according to his power, which is at work where? 
in us. That's what it says in verse 20. He's got this amazing power that's at work in us. God's abundant power, a power that is willing and able to do immeasurably or infinitely or superabundantly more than we've ever asked for or dreamed of, that power is at work within us. Now, every human being has two basic needs. Really, at the bottom, we have two basic needs. We need to be loved, we need to be received and loved, and we need to be cared for. You need love, and you need somebody to care for you. And that's true for a six-week-old baby. It's true for a 16-year-old teenager or a 40-year-old mom or an 80-year-old man. You need to be received graciously and joyously into a community of loving persons, and then you need to be provided for. You need to have an opportunity to have your deepest needs met, the ones that you can't meet yourself that can only be met by others. Well, you see, when you, when you step into the kingdom of God by confidence in Christ, you come home to a place where you are loved with the most powerful love that you can imagine. And actually, you can't imagine it, says Paul. It's a love, says Paul in Ephesians 1, that was set upon you and predestined you from before the foundation of the world. And your Father and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit then did everything necessary to be able to receive you to themselves so that you could dwell near them forever in perfect bliss. And it cost them so much to be able to do that. But they paid that cost. They did that work with great joy. It gave the triune God joy to redeem you. You are then brought into a community of loving persons through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one God, but they are three persons. And the Trinity is a a blessed community of loving persons. And you're brought into deep fellowship with the triune God. And you're abundantly provided for. Because this power from God is at work within you, and it's able to do immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine. Every good thing that you need will be provided to you. God will withhold from us no good thing, it says in Psalm 84.11. And in Romans 8.32, it says, He who gave us His Son will give us all things. So there's nothing that you lack when you step into the kingdom. Now, what does all that mean? What's the significance of all that? Well, well, it means many things, but, but one thing it means is this. Since this love and this powerful care are something that's really available to us right now, and not just after we die when we go to heaven, then this world is a perfectly safe place for us to be. This world, if you are walking with Jesus, is a perfectly safe place for you to be. I'm not saying that nothing bad or painful will happen to you, but I am saying that nothing irredeemable can happen to you. I'm also saying that you'll be given every resource you need to walk together with Jesus through whatever it is that you have to face and to be able to do so with deep joy, with a peace that passes all understanding, 
and a supernatural love for all who are involved. And that is why Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, you're going to have trouble, you're going to have pain, you're going to have sorrow, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, you're not on this journey by yourself. It's not just you and Jesus together. Because God is also at work in the same way in other people. Other people are on the same path that you are walking with the Lord. And so the next question you have to ask yourself is, what's my relationship to those other people who are walking the same path as me? Well, says the Bible, they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and God says in His Word that you have a special obligation to them. The Bible calls the total number of people who are walking with Jesus in His kingdom together, He calls that the church. Now, in spite of the fact that there are many different buildings with many different labels on them all over the landscape, there's really only one church, and it consists of all of those who are truly walking with Jesus in the kingdom. In Reformed theology, we call this group the invisible church because its boundaries and full membership is known only to God. We call the, the groupings of people that are gathered in buildings all over the landscape this morning the visible church. So we have the invisible church, which is all the people that are really walking with Jesus, and then we have the visible church where these buildings, where, where people gather together. And the visible church, says the Bible, consists of those who are walking with Jesus in His kingdom and also those who claim to be but really aren't. And that's what Jesus taught in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. God has decreed this arrangement for now. We, we sometimes find it very unsatisfactory, but God has decreed this arrangement for now according to Jesus, and God will deal with the weeds in His own good time. And one of the main points of the parable is that you can't tell the difference between a wheat plant and a weed plant until the growth process is done, when the head of grain forms on the wheat. That's the only time you can tell the difference because one of them looks a little weird and the other one looks very regular and uniform. And the weed that Jesus spoke of in that parable is called bearded darnel or false wheat. It's actually poisonous. And some churches get so full of weeds that they cease to be true visible churches because the weeds have taken control. And Jesus called those churches in Revelation synagogues of Satan, false churches. But because you and I can't tell the difference between a wheat and a weed, we are told that the problem is one that God will deal with Himself. So our job is to simply treat everyone in the true visible church as though they are part of the invisible church also, unless we have a very good reason to do otherwise. Now, it's at this point in Ephesians that the whole teaching of the letter pivots. In chapters 1 through 3, we're told that about what God has done for us. In chapters 4 through 6, we begin to be told how we ought to live given what God has done for us. There's, there's a verb actually in the text that symbolizes this shift, and it's the verb to walk. It doesn't have anything to do with your feet. It's about your mode of life. 
And the idea is this, since God has done all this wonderful stuff for you and has placed you in the midst of a multi-ethnic, multicultural, diverse group of people who he has also done wonderful stuff for, how then should we respond? How then should we live? And, and Paul answers that question. And he says, I exhort you, or I urge you. The word in Greek is parakaleo. It's actually related to the word that we get, that Jesus used to, th- used to talk about the Holy Spirit in John, the paraclete. And he says, I come alongside of you as an act of encouragement, and I say to you that you must walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. God called you, says Paul. God called you from death to life. He called you from poverty to the richest of inheritances. He called you from uselessness to a life of purpose. He called you from ethnic and cultural chaos to oneness in Christ. He called you from ignorance of spiritual knowledge to a place of spiritual knowledge. God called you out of rejection and into acceptance. God called you from defeat into victory. God called you as an orphan and adopted you as his child. And all of that means something. All of that impacts your being now and forevermore. You are highly, highly favored. You have every resource that you need at your disposal. You can live a life without any lack whatsoever. So walk like it. Walk as though you were chosen from before the foundation of the world to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Now, the first area of your life that Paul wants you to see transformed is not your sex life. It's not how you spend your money. It's not your tongue and how you talk. It's, it's not how you compute your taxes. The first area then that, that God wants you to address with his powerful help is your relationship with the other people around you who are also learning from Jesus how to walk in the kingdom. That is the first area of priority that God wants you to address with his help is with how you interact with your fellow professing believers. Particularly for us in this little outpost of the visible church called Tabernacle Evangelical Presbyterian Church, because this is where God put us to live this life together and and learn how to follow him. Jesus himself says that when you, you step into the kingdom and you begin walking with him, that your relationships get radically reprioritized. And the most important relationship in your life, the relationship that comes first, is your relationship with Jesus. And nothing is to interfere with that. He he even goes so far as to use the metaphor of hatred. Everything, Everything else needs to be so far down the ladder that you would not think of putting another person in the place of Jesus or ahead of Jesus. He is number one. So that's the first change that happens. The second change that happens is that number two becomes your brothers and sisters in Christ. And all of your other relationships 
come after that. So it's Jesus first, your brothers and sisters in Christ second, and then everything else below that. Those are the top two, Jesus and your brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, the relationship of believer to believer is more primary than the relationship of husband and wife or parent and child. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because that's what the Bible teaches. Think about it for a minute. We will all die one day. If a husband and a wife are both believers, their relationship will continue in eternity in a different form. If they're not believers, that relationship is ruptured and ends forever at death. The same is true for parents and children. Either I will have my children with me together forever in heaven, or when I depart this earth, I will never see them again. That's just the truth. And God says, life works best when my earthly dearest ones are also my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that then strengthens and puts those other relationships on their proper footing. And that's why God says that a believer, for instance, should never marry an unbeliever. And if two unbelievers are married and and one of them comes to Christ, but their spouse is still an unbeliever, the one who comes to Christ should do everything in their power, make every effort possible to win their unbelieving spouse. And primarily, that will be sustained acts of love and kindness and patience and deep prayer, along with judicious words, carefully chosen, and not too many of them, explaining everything clearly, and then letting God do with it what He wants to do. That's also why God puts so much emphasis on teaching our children about the things of God and on disciplining them carefully, and and on not allowing their likes and dislikes of their fallen sinful natures to determine whether or not they will participate, for instance, in family worship and Bible study, or where you will be on a Sunday morning. They don't get to control that. I know, honey, you don't like it. You sit down and, and not like it quietly right here next to me. Just deal with it. So the relationship with fellow believers is primary because it's eternal. It's also primary because God designed the life with Jesus in the kingdom to be one that's lived out in community with other believers, whereby we help one another towards wholeness and well-being. But that can only happen in the church, in the community of believers, when it is a safe place to be a place where we imitate Jesus in our own small way by loving and providing for each other. God intends the church to be a completely safe place full of trustworthy people who are helping each other work out our salvation with fear and trembling as God works within us both to will and to act according to His good pleasure. And so in that sense, really the church is kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a completely safe place to have problems and to deal with your problems with the help of people who are also overcoming their problems. You think about that for a minute. What's what's the first thing you got to do at at AA? You have to stand up and say, 
I am so-and-so, this is my name, and I am an alcoholic. Well, good morning, church. My name is Reverend Brian Carpenter, and I am a recovering sinner. And so are you. And, and, and God brought us to this place together to speak that truth and then to help each other. And of course, your biggest problem and my biggest problem is that I'm not yet like Christ and I want to be more like Christ and, and I need you to help me with that. And if that's what you want, then you need me to help you with that. And if that's not what you want, then there's really not much here for you until you're actually born again and decide that you want to be like Jesus. All these other things, these good things that can flow out of the life of the church, like the healing of marriages and the helping of wayward children and evangelizing and helping the poor and racial reconciliation and the defeat of social evils, none of that can happen in a distinctly Christian way until we put in place the foundation of real, abiding, spiritual, deeply good healthy life. And that can't start until the church, as a church, sees itself primarily as a school of life or a hospital where people are taught and healed and transformed. And that won't happen until everybody understands that that's the clear expectation that Christ has, that, that we would come here as a place to worship and love Him, but also as a place to be transformed by Him together as, and, and to turn it into a good and safe place for that to happen. And so that's why Paul starts off like he does, by describing this life that's worthy of its calling in terms of relationships within the church. He says, okay, guys, now that you've been loved with the everlasting love of Christ that you can't even understand, now that you've got this unimaginable power at work within you, it's time to be the church, and it's time to live in a way that is worthy of all that's been poured into you. What does that look like? Well, he says it starts with humility. All humility, he says, completely humble. The word in Greek literally means lowliness of mind. It means that I come into the church and it says, and I say, I know I'm a mess. And I also know you're a mess. And my mess might be in different areas than your mess. And I'm not going to beat you up about that. Arrogance is to look at some area of mess in your life where I don't struggle and say, well, I, I may have my problems, but at least I'm not like that. Humility says, I see, I see your problem. I, I see that you have a problem in, in this area right here. I'm so sorry that you struggle with that. I have problems too. They're different than yours. Maybe we can help each other with our problems, even if it's only by praying for one another and loving one another. I love you, and I accept you, and I want God's best for you. That's humility. Humility isn't worried about reputation. It's not worried about recognition. Humility gets uncomfortable being noticed and singled out for praise. It doesn't care about getting credit or even necessarily being thanked. Humility is just happy when God is glorified and good things happen. Paul says, be completely humble with one another. The second thing he says is, be gentle. Be gentle. A gentle person will do what needs to be done 
without causing unnecessary pain or suffering. You think about, you know, I, I think about hospice. I, I knew a lot of nurses in hospice, and they were some of the gentlest people that I'd ever met in my life. And they could come alongside somebody who was in great pain and figure out how to do what needed to be done without adding to that pain, even sometimes by taking it away. They were gentle. We should be gentle. Gentleness wants to, uh, wants to do what it can do without causing extra pain. A gentle person is a person with a quiet spirit. A gentle person is safe to be around. They're safe to be vulnerable with. They're safe to be weak around. There's no malice or hurt in a gentle person. But gentleness isn't weakness. Gentleness is actually perfectly controlled strength. There was a, a, there's another word that, that um, the New Testament uses for gentle and uh, sometimes it's translated meek. It's translated that way in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and that doesn't refer to weakness. That actually refers uh, to, um, in, in the secular Greek, to a very powerfully built war stallion that is exquisitely trained and is therefore safe to be around. So it's great strength under total control with no desire to cause damage or injury. The next thing Paul mentions is patience. Patience is, is uh, in Greek, is makrothuma. It literally means long-tempered. We talk about somebody that gets angry easily, and we say they have a, a short fuse. Well, the person who is patient has a long fuse. It means to be able to endure annoyances and difficulties over a period of time. St. John Chrysostom, writing in the 300s, says that patience means to have a wide soul, a broad soul, a big soul. To be truly patient is not to indulge somebody, it's to recognize that God is at work in them or in that situation. And, and that his methodologies and his timetable might be different than mine. And so I'm going to submit to God's timetable, and I'm going to let God work, and I'm going to stand back and watch and pray. And if I have an opportunity and God calls me to, I'll assist God in his working. But if, but if I, I do, it won't be because I'm frustrated, and I've just had enough, and I can't stand it anymore, so now I'm going to blurt out what I've been thinking all along. No, no. It's to say, I love you. I see what's going on. I can help you here. I can just encourage you. Keep going. God's at work. The last one, he says, is bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. That word translated as bearing literally means suffering or enduring. If you live in any sort of a family, whether it's a natural family or a spiritual family, that means that you're going to be bumping into each other. And, and to be bearing with one another in love is to overlook those offenses. It means to put up with things when you know that somebody's doing their best. 
And you shouldn't have to put up with those things, but, but you put up with those things because you know under Jesus that person is doing their best. And their best just isn't up to snuff yet. So you go ahead and you walk with them and you work with them at their pace. That's how we are to be with one another here. Now, it's critically important to understand that none of this comes at the expense of the truth. Later on in in Ephesians 4.15, Paul makes that abundantly clear when he says that we are to speak the truth in love and grow up in all things into Him who is the head into Christ. And the reason it's important to emphasize that is because we have a, a sort of an alternative model of how to be together, and it's the white, middle-class, northern European way of learning how to be together, and, and it's, it's where we pretend to be patient, but we fume inside. And we don't, we don't talk to people about what's actually going on, because that might, they might get mad and fume at us, but, so we can't help them, but we get frustrated with them, and then we talk about them behind their back, or we distance ourselves from them, or something like that. We're going to actually go into that, not next week, because I'll be gone, but the week after, to talk about, okay, what does it mean to put these things into practice in the relationships in a church? Because if we do it, it will be enormously healthy. And this will be a place where people can come and say, I'm, I'm broken. I'm a mess. And I can admit that here, and it's a safe place to admit that but they also care enough about me under Jesus and think so much of me that they're willing to help me not be a mess anymore. They accept me, but they also call me upwards in Christ. And if we can just learn how to do that, this place will be radically different than all the other places in the world because nobody else does that. Nobody. But we're supposed to. And this is what God is telling us to do. Let's pray. Father, I feel so inadequate and discombobulated today. And I feel like a a tiny toy boat that's tossed on an angry ocean. I just pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will have been acceptable in your sight. And that if anything that was said today is true and good and helpful, that you would cause it to be remembered and carefully understood. And if anything I've said is wrong or unclear or unhelpful, just cause it to be forgotten. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.